My hope is that through this process, no matter what the outcome is, that the outcome is only something that makes us better. Uh, that the outcome is only something that gets us closer to to justice. Um, that the outcome is only something that is, I think, welcomed by God. From the Jesuit Conference of Canada in the United States, this is AMDG. I'm your guest host, Megan Leach. My guest this week is Mikal Black Elk, who is a member of the Oglala Lakota tribe on Pine Ridge Reservation. Black Elk is the director of Truth and Healing at Red Cloud Indian School, a Jesuit-run school on the reservation. In this newly established role, Black Elk is helping Red Cloud face its history as an indigenous boarding school through a formal truth and healing process. We had a powerful and challenging conversation about this history and how it impacts the Pine Ridge community today. We also talked about identity and culture and how Black Elk's faith runs through both. Before we dive in, though, I want to talk about the history of Indigenous boarding schools in the U.S. to give a little context for our conversation. In the 1860s, the U.S. government began a broad campaign to force Indigenous tribes to assimilate into white American culture. Strategies included relocating tribes to reservations and subdividing tribe-controlled lands into private family property. Through its Indian boarding school policy, the government helped establish over 350 Indigenous boarding schools across the country. The policy forced Indigenous children to attend boarding schools where students were prohibited from speaking their language or practicing their culture. An estimated 100,000 children attended these schools. Founded by the Jesuits in 1887, Red Cloud School received funding through the Indian boarding school policy. Students lived at the school away from their families for 10 months of the year, only going home for summers and holidays. Half of the day was devoted to schooling, taught exclusively in English, and the other half to chores around the mission, laundry, cooking, farming, and carpentry. Students were forbidden from speaking their native languages, and order was at times enforced through physical punishment. Though aspects of the assimilation policy ended in the 1930s, it was only in the 1970s that the federal government began to relinquish control over education to tribal governments. This history fuels ongoing cycles of trauma in many tribal communities. Yet the U.S. government has made little effort to redress these wounds. Black Elk stresses that Red Cloud is not exempt from the history and legacy of U.S. boarding school policy. Over the years, the school has changed. By 1980, Red Cloud had phased out its dormitories and became a day school only. The school now offers Lakota language and cultural studies classes, which have contributed to the effort to revive the Lakota language. In 1993, Jesuit Father General Kolvenbach offered an official apology to the Lakota people, saying, I realize that we, as Jesuits, have at times been the source of some of your pain. For that, we are deeply sorry. Still, the underlying harm to the Lakota has never been addressed. Until now. In the fall of 2019, the school administration formed a Truth and Healing Committee. 
Under Black Elk's leadership, the committee has outlined the framework for a formal truth and healing process, which will include stakeholders from the school administration, the Jesuits on Pine Ridge, Red Cloud alumni, and the broader Lakota community. Black Elk and I started our conversation talking about identity and culture, how they shape the contours of our lives, and how, for Black Elk, they confer a sacred responsibility. When I think about my Lakota identity and my community and my culture, I guess I'm reminded a little bit of something my mother used to say. Um, it involves actually Mount Rushmore, the in the Black Hills that's you know nearby, sort of iconic American symbol. And for my community, right, the the Black Hills were a sacred place. Um, you know, very important part of our uh, traditions and our stories and to have the faces right of of leaders of this country who didn't treat American Indians very well carved into those sacred mountains was always right, a kind of of its own uh, I think example of just sort of where our place in society was but my mother would would, talk about Mount Rushmore and she would say, when I look at Mount Rushmore, I actually see a responsibility in being Lakota. Um, and what I always took that to mean was that being a Lakota person, being indigenous, there's an element of, that I think that's really core uh, to those identities, which is that these, this community, its history, its culture were nearly eradicated. And so there is a responsibility to make sure that knowledge, that culture, that the story of this community is held on to, lived and learned from and, and passed on, uh, that there's a responsibility to that. Um, and that, that's sort of what I definitely would sort of describe as one of the key features that motivates me and animates me um, in the work that I do. Uh, you know, my background is as an educator and a teacher. For me, there's a responsibility to be Lakota and a responsibility to demonstrate and live out my belief that being Lakota is not limited by anything, um, but that wherever we are, we can embody being who we are, embody that history, bring our perspectives to the table, um, and uh, yeah, I think just show that the sort of stereotype of the historic Indian um, you know, sort of trapped in that sort of history isn't what we are anymore, that we're a modern people just like anyone else and we can uh, give uh, a lot back to not just our own community, but to the world. Um, so yeah, I think that's, those are the things that I think really animate me and, and empower me in my identity. 
So, Macaw, you're a descendant of Nicholas Black Elk, who was a spiritual leader among the Lakota and is now being considered for canonization in the Catholic Church. Your mother, I read, was a Lakota lawyer and activist, and your father spent some time as a, a Benedictine monk. How did all of those identities shape your, your childhood? How, how do you navigate them now? Thank you. That's a great question. Um, yes, I am. A, I am a descendant of Nicholas Black Elk, um, who, as a figure, uh, as a historical figure, is someone who represents a very complicated mixture of these two sort of worlds, um, not just these traditions of, of the Catholic faith, uh, but also of the Lakota spiritual, um, the spiritual power and spiritual beauty. Uh, he was someone who, uh, obviously through through the work of of, uh, of John Neihart, who wrote Black Elk Speaks along with him, you know that book changed generations of people, um, and and really is pointed to as a great reason, an impetus for the resurgence and revitalization of Lakota traditional spiritual practices and practitioners. Um, who are inspired by and are able to pass on those those traditions from the work that resulted in in John Neihardt's work with Black Elk. Um, a lot of people who only knew Black Elk by that book didn't know that he was Catholic also um, and, you know, had uh, uh, been a catechist and who uh, had a strong relationship with the Jesuits or what were called the Black Robes who, at the time who came here. I think, I think Black Elk represents just how complex that relationship is, even in just how he's perceived today. Um, my parents are, are great examples of that. Um, you know, my mother is the, uh, you know, closer descendant of Black Elk, right? She's his uh, great, great granddaughter. Um, but in the Black Elk family, you know, there's kind of two, two camps of belief about Black Elk himself. Uh, one, one camp sort of takes on this idea that um, Black Elk was a true convert uh, to Catholicism. And, and maybe eventually he, he actually sort of renounced the Lakota traditions um, and, and full on uh, committed to uh, the Catholic way of life. Uh, and the other camp, uh, which my mother belongs to, believes that uh, he actually wasn't authentically Catholic at all uh, the entire time, um, that he was a product of, of his time, which in that era of reservation life, uh, freedom was incredibly limited. I, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, I think he really did come to find beauty in the Catholic faith. I think he uh, was someone who took a lot of value from his relationships with the black robes and from one spiritual person to another, right? Just being able to share in, in that, uh, that ability to think deeply about, about creation and about our creator. Um, but I think he also valued his traditions and saw the beauty in that as well. I don't think he rejected them um, for his new Catholic faith. I think he's someone who really did live uh, way ahead of his time in terms of in terms of that 
nature. I think he was someone who really balanced that very well. The story I always tell about this relationship is when I was, I think roughly eight years old, I finally sort of recognized that uh, when it came to going to mass on Sundays, it was only my dad and me. Um, my mother never, never came with us and um, my older siblings uh, never did either. Um, and so I finally sort of asked her, mom, how come you, you don't come to mass with dad and I on Sunday? And without even taking her attention away from what she was doing, I think she was sewing, um, she said, well, I just don't believe in that. And in fact, it's entirely incompatible with Lakota spirituality and kept on doing what she was doing. It was, such a, as, it was very nonchalant for her. And I was sort of blown away. <laughs> I was, it, was, it was like a bomb had exploded in my head um, because I didn't know what to make of that. I grew up going to mass every Sunday, going through you know, uh, first communion and um, those sacraments. And then also going to uh, helping with the sweat lodge every couple of weeks or going to Sundance every summer and going through some of the Lakota coming of age ceremonies and rites. I didn't know that there was a conflict between these two things until someone told me there was. And that came in the form of my mother in that moment. Um, and so it was a, a big bomb drop for me. And I, I went to my dad and I asked him, you know, dad, uh, this is what mom said about Christianity and the mass and what, what do you think, right? Because <laughs> um, he's the one I would go to mass with, right? So, um, and I after I told him everything that mom said, he uh, sort of gave, I think that really fatherly sort of like knowing sigh. Um, and he said, well, your mom's not wrong, but, what she's talking about is culture and culture is a human creation, but, and culture changes. He said, but what's eternal is God. And that's what doesn't change. And as we, as human beings, you know, sort of learn more and learn how to be closer to, to God, our cultures sometimes change too. And that really made sense for me. Um, you know, that that kind of healed this this sort of schism that had developed in that moment. Um, it's imperfect, um, but I am able to understand that culture certainly is a human creation, and that's why it changes over time. Our culture, our Lakota culture, has changed a lot. Most of it not by choice, but nonetheless, it's still here. And it is still something that we can nourish and grow and develop. So cultures change uh, and Catholicism changes too. Uh, so I am able to take, make sense of, of that because of that experience, because of the words of my father and the words of my mother as they sort of blended together to create this story. And I think that's really reflective of Black Elk as well. I think he was someone who was able to recognize those same ideas in a time when that certainly wasn't the norm. Um, and I think he was able to see himself as being a bridge rather than a barrier. You now serve as Red Cloud's executive director of Truth and Healing. 
Red Cloud was originally opened in the in the late 1800s, and it was part of this broader national Indian boarding school policy. How has this policy affected Indigenous communities into the present? The legacy of the Indian boarding school system, I think, is present in every aspect of society today as it's been, you know, as it's evolved from that period. I think that history is remarkably responsible for many of the challenges that my community and other communities across the nation, Indigenous communities who were uh, brought into that system still face today, uh, 100%. Because it was rooted entirely in the dissolution of the family. Uh, You know, children were forcefully taken away from their homes and brought to these unfamiliar institutions. And early on, these were kids who did not speak the language that was now spoken by the adults around them, often didn't speak the languages of the other Native children who were there uh, because they were all, you know, torn from different tribes. Um, They were isolated and were unable to see their families and many didn't ever get to see their families again. Um, But the ones who did, you know, that scar is still incredibly powerful. Um, And it makes absolute sense that some of the terrible things that happened in these boarding schools, the, you know, uh, corporal punishment culture, the uh, sexual abuse that would sometimes occur um, based on individual stories, that obviously those things impacted those individuals so profoundly that when it came to them creating their own families, there would be some of that passed on. And uh, I think it's created generations and and cycles of trauma that I think are still relevant today. Absolutely. I think we can trace back a lot of the dissolution of family to some of that separation and, and the culture that it built. And that's not something that Red Cloud here is immune from either. When, I've, when I took on this job, one of the first things I did was start to read up on some of the history of this place. Because of course, you know, I know it sort of intuitively by being from here and the, the stories that people in the community tell, but you know, there's obviously also ways in which we can find out more given our historical documents and our, our history and the ways in which we were, were able to tell certain things from those, those records. And, you know, I can see, I was able to see, you know, descriptions from some of the Jesuit priests here of uh, students who would run away and the ways in which they would have to contact uh, the Indian agency police to go physically uh, drag those children back here. Um, That that happened. Um, To deny that that happened is I think to deny history. Uh, And that is really what my role is today, is to help this institution, help this community, help the Jesuit community uh, really take stock of that history and understand its impact 
and especially help and support the few survivors we have left who remember their time as boarding school children here, um, but also their descendants who were also deeply impacted by their parents or their great grandparents uh, boarding school experience. Um, and, and bring those stories to the front to, to really put on the table those situations, those, you know, really challenging circumstances and reveal them in a way that allows them to heal. Um, we can't, as, as Red Cloud, the institution, we can't make anybody heal, but we can open the door that we have intentionally kept shut all these years. Um, it's amazing that we're finally making that step. What do we know about Red Cloud's history? How has the, the boarding school policy and other policies of forced assimilation impacted the Pine Ridge community? Yeah, when we think about a truth and healing process, we, we've adopted a framework that comes from an actual Lakota scholar, um, Dr. Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart, in her work has sort of laid out this four-stage process. Uh, those stages being, number one, confrontation, number two, understanding, number three, healing, and number four, transformation. Um, most often people want to talk about healing right away, um, but the, you can see that that's actually stage three. Uh, stage one is confrontation. And among that broad umbrella of work that comes under the confrontation uh, category, that's inclusive of the stories that individuals have to tell, uh, the stories that have been passed on to descendants, but yes, the stories that are within our records. Um, and those records have to be read, understood, analyzed, and then told, right? The stories within those records have to be told. That process is gonna take some time. Um, in the very little amount of work that I've been able to do on that front, uh, you know, it's it's been incredibly, um, there's an, how can I put this? I was reading recently some analysis of writings that the Sisters of St. Francis, who are the, the, the women's religious partners for the Jesuits in running the school here, um, the, the first ones, uh, the Sisters of St. Francis had written and were translated from Germany or from German uh, into English uh, when they were writing back to their, their mother house. Um, about their experiences here. And at times it was incredibly difficult to read. Um, there's just a section I read just describing um, some of the different circumstances where students uh, died. Um, and it was done, in, it was, you know, it's written in this sort of old fashioned kind of manner where it's, it's sort of very cut and dry. Um, but just to sort of see that there's this documentation of, um, this year, this many boys died and this many girls died and the following year, this many boys died and this many girls died. Um, and 
for them to see in those writings some of the um, explanations um, for some of them, not all of them, of course, but there were some explanations for some of them. Um, and it's, it's haunting um, to think about. And there's more in those stories of, in, in our records that I'm sure are even more challenging, if not uh, more devastating, but we don't know that yet um, because those records are, are in boxes um, in Marquette University. Uh, and we've got to do the hard work of, of committing to understanding what's there um, and, and being able to see those stories uh, root out. One of the questions I'm always asking, and I think it's important to mention this now, is when, when many start to hear these kinds of things, their knee-jerk reaction is to ask, but weren't there good stories too? Weren't there good things that happened? Um, was there not any you know, uh, positive outcomes from any of this? Um, the answer is yes. The, the, the answer is that there were positive things that happened. Absolutely. It wasn't uh, 100% this sort of, um, you know, grim and, and, uh, and really evil um, sort of way of life. There was intention there and there was moments and, and people who built good relationships and who came out of those schools with skills and with an appreciation. Um, for the things that they've learned and, and relationships they had built with the Jesuits and the sisters. That's all there and that's all true. None of those good stories change the system that was created and, and the purpose that it was meant to imp implement, which was the eradication of native culture and, uh, and way of life. The, the Native family as we knew it. None of the good stories undo any of the, the pain and the harm. None of those good stories balance any of the harm that was committed. And that's not, it's not the point to talk about those good stories to, to balance them out, uh, the bad ones. This is not a, a comparison or in, in no way is this process of truth and healing about understanding how much harm any one place did compared to how much good it did and try to see if there's some sort of zero sum or, or if the harm can be, you know, at the very least, you, you know, made sense uh, with the good that, that sort of happened. Um, I get the rate, the reason why people want to, you know, kind of push that question of, but what about the good things that happen? Um, but I hope that people can eventually understand that um, it's not about the good things that happen. It's about the harm that was committed, the ways in which that harm sticks with us to this day, and the ways in which that historic harm continues to erect walls between us and walls that make it 
difficult for families to truly overcome and, and see their, their greatest potential. So the, the language of truth and healing is very intentional. What, what do we mean by truth and healing? And more practically, what does truth and healing mean for Red Cloud and, and for Pine Ridge? For this community, there's a lot of anger about the boarding school history. Um, there's a lot of anger about the Catholic Church's role in boarding school history. Uh, there's a lot of anger about the ways in which Christianity as a whole came to this community and and deliberately tried to assert that Indigenous peoples, that the Lakota people themselves were, were flawed and, and wrong and, uh, uh, you know, um, and unworthy uh, and not good enough. Um, so that anger at that paradigm, that is what continues to rob this community of its full potential. Um, so, and not, not that, you know, <laughs> Often there's a, there can be this uh, way of framing that that says, well, then they should just get over it, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's a phrase that we hear sometimes when we think about this kind of thing, especially around historical trauma. Um, and there's, not, there's, there's an element of that that's somewhat true, but it's, it's incomplete. Uh, absolutely. The, Native peoples are, our task is phenomenal when it comes to uh, understanding our history, making sense of our history as a colonized people and coming to terms with what that means for us today. There's a lot of work to be done there uh, that is very challenging and, and very, um, you know, difficult because of the nature of the history itself. However, there is a responsibility of those who were the perpetrators and those who inherited the perpetrator's legacy to admit and change uh, what's possible to change. Um, and that, that speaks a little bit to some of those other stages that I talked about in those, in those four stages, right? So confrontation isn't just for Indigenous people to confront their history and, and make sense of it. It's also for the inheritors of that legacy of, of the perpetrator, that they have to come to the table and, and fully examine the harm that was committed by their forebears. And they have to admit and own that particular legacy uh, they have to understand what impact it's had on their indigenous fellows, but also on their own community and, and what that has done for their understanding of who, who humans were and who got to be counted as human uh, and what that means for a community who uh, at one point in time felt that these entire group of people weren't good enough um, and, and 
didn't have the, the same value that they did. Um, that's hard to recognize and come to terms with. Uh, it's no easy task for those folks as well, but that's, I think, what's possible here is when that confrontation occurs, that understanding can begin to happen and that healing is therefore possible. And healing is for everyone. And healing, again, is not just for Indigenous people. Healing is also for, again, those perpetrators. And in, in our case here, ultimately, the Catholic Church, um, in its own way, has a lot to heal, ha has a lot of healing it needs to do. Um, and I think that only makes it a stronger faith if it's able to do that. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of, of potential. Um, for the community, I think it means it means ultimately that their experiences, the stories of their ancestors, that those are not forgotten and that those lessons are passed on and learned from and that we get to turn to our ancestors and say uh, that that we've made it and we're still here and we're we're able to uh, be fully realized in ways that we've not allowed to have been before. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, obviously, you know, the question is, is difficult in and of itself. It's going to mean a lot of different things for different people. Um, but I think I could definitely speak for, for myself um, and also to, to say that I think the lack of healing, the lack of admission, and the lack of confrontation on these issues that those remain to this day, I think, one of the largest barriers to building relationship in this in the community of indigenous peoples and and in our case, right, the the Catholic Church. Um, you know, the, how can you form relationship with someone who who denies your pain? Um, how can you form relationship with someone who uh, who dismisses? you know sort of your 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 history um so i think what this also means is it is an opportunity for um a future where we can finally recognize where where we can finally recognize how we're more similar what steps have the truth and healing committee taken so far to to roll out what is going to be such a long-term process Long-term is the word. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we've been talking about how this is a process that's gonna be from five years to forever. Um, but <laughs> initially the first thing we needed to do was just learn. Uh, we spent our initial year in this work forming a group of people who represented different parts of our community. It's almost like the pre-confrontation stage, right? Like before we can confront the history, we actually have to, you know, take time to uh, understand and, and give 
more of that history to those who don't have it. Um, so we've done a lot of internal work around um, making sense of that history, talking about our history as we know it so far, uh, engaging in conversations in the red cloud within the red cloud system to help our fellows, um, the teachers, the staff, administrators, leadership uh, to dive into this conversation. Um, there's all kinds of levels of knowledge about this issue um, within the our own community here. And so, you know, we needed to sort of give the basic information to those who had not come across this before, um, which is an, its own American tragedy. But, um, you know, there are plenty of folks who had no idea about the boarding school history and what it what it meant and what it what it did. Uh, for those who have some knowledge of it, there needs to be opportunity for depth and dialogue. Uh, so we're, you know, creating opportunities to do that uh, within our school system. Um, I started having dialogue with the Jesuit community um, and having them sort of be as a collective unit addressing this and, and sort of being asked questions and being able to um, offer their thoughts to each other freely um, as they engage in this work. We are looking at how do we start making this conversation relevant and stronger in our schools um, for our, our teachers to be able to know more about this and therefore our students to be able to see this history in their classroom and be able to sort of make sense of it as well in, in different ways. We're at the early stages now of starting to reach out to the, the broader community, uh, but it's been challenging. Uh, you know, the few survivors that I've been able to talk to very understandably distrust the institution. Uh, they'll, you know, I've been asked, uh, well, why is Red Cloud doing this? What, what's in it for Red Cloud? What, what are they trying to get out, out of this process? And that makes absolute sense. Um, and we don't, we don't pretend as an institution that we're, uh, again, bringing healing to anyone. Um, there's no saviorism in this work. Uh, but we know that there's a distrust and a disconnect, I think, between some of our survivors and the ability to engage Red Cloud in this topic uh, and bring their stories to the table. Uh, so right now we're looking at uh, having a third party help us in this process, who can also hold us accountable, um, but who could be a much more um, trusting and credible body for the community to communicate with, um, that they can help you know, build that relationship, be that bridge and that liaison from the survivor community to the institution itself, um, knowing that you know, they'll, they'll need to be that buffer for, for more trust, um, that'll help with transparency, and that a third party partner can again kind of guide our hand along as well. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Eric, and I want to make sure you have what you need to celebrate the Ignatian year. What? You didn't know we were celebrating an Ignatian year? You don't even know what it is? Well, then you're definitely going to want to head over to jesuits.org slash Ignatian Year. 
There you'll find prayers, resources, and information on upcoming events to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the conversion of St. Ignatius of Loyola. Together, we'll reflect on what Ignatius' conversion means for us and how it helps us to see all things new in Christ. We're back with Macaw Black Elk, who's the executive director of Truth and Healing at Red Cloud Indian School. Former U.S. Representative Deb Holland, who is now the secretary of the U.S. Department of the Interior, the first indigenous woman to, to hold that position, um, and Senator Elizabeth Warren introduced a bill last year that would create a nationwide Truth and Healing Commission on boarding school policy. How would this bill support the work of, of Red Cloud's committee? I think that um, if there were a national truth and healing uh, commission looking at this issue of boarding schools, um, that would be enormous. Uh, it would be enormous for obviously the, the entire indigenous nation um, here in this country. Uh, but for Red Cloud, I think it would, of course, help to uh, to fo- inform this the process even further. Um, what's been really amazing about the timeliness of of Senator Warren and, and Congresswoman Holland's uh, bill on this issue um, is that in many ways, the sort of dual, um, the dual motion of that, that, that bill being introduced to Congress um, and Red Cloud's own initiative of, of pushing this on, on, in our sort of local context, um, that it's prompted the Jesuits writ large to respond. Uh, you know, we couldn't probably have done, done this and move forward with this work without the approval of, you know, the leadership in the Jesuit society. And uh, when the bill was brought to our attention, uh, we endorsed it and uh, we asked if the Jesuits were willing to endorse it as well. Uh, and it, uh, by the time the bill was introduced, it was sort of too late for them to put their public commentary on it. Um, but they have since uh, fully endorsed it and are going to you know, be supporting uh, uh, that process uh, when it potentially is reintroduced uh, in this new Congress. Um, that's amazing. I can't believe that we're sitting at a time now where, you know, the Jesuit order, the Society of Jesus is, you know, themselves, you know, really um, offering their support and uh, pushing this to be a, a priority of theirs um, that they're going to commit to. Um, I don't think that would have been possible four or five years ago. Um, I think we're really in a, in a very different time now. Um, so that bill, you know, if it were to pass, which we, you know, we surely hope it does in this new Congress, um, I think that would help expand this conversation nationally. Um, it was Canada's Truth and Reconciliation, uh, it was Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, that ended in 2015 on their residential school system, where, you know, I believe it was found that, you know, prior to that commission, um, you know, amongst the non the non First Nations community in Canada, uh, 
a really low percentage uh, of people even knew about residential schools. Today, after you know the the, the process in Canada at their federal government level, you know, more than 80% of Canadians now are aware of that history. Um, I think something similar could happen here um, if if our nation were to truly invest in, in that topic, uh, because that's one of the largest barriers. There's, a, a ver- I think, a veritable lack of, of that among the, the larger U.S. population. Um, and if there's any thing that is one of the more challenging barriers to social change, it's a lack of knowledge about that uh, and the need for it. So uh, my hope is that if there is a a national bill that establishes a a national commission, that this story will be taken much more seriously, that the resources that we need to to truly do this work are uh, now made more available and that this nation um, gets to, in its own way, experience the hopeful healing that would come as a result of that kind of process. You know, we look to our neighbors in Canada and, you know, obviously when their Truth and Reconciliation Commission ended in 2015, you know, that history didn't suddenly go away with it and and the pain and harm that, that it caused didn't go away with it. Um, and certainly Canada is still working on uh, committing to the promises that were recommended uh, in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report. Uh, and I think, you know, that would happen here too. We would need to recognize that whatever report is sort of, whatever recommendations are made by a national working group on this issue, um, that we have a lot of work to do to commit to those recommendations and to continue to educate uh, and to change um, the very things that, uh, you know, continue that legacy. How do you hope to see this process grow into the future? Again, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a very flowery word, right? Transformation. Uh, it certainly sounds great. Um, but if you are to, you know, ask, well, what does it mean for for transformation to occur after a process like this. Uh, I think for the institution of Red Cloud, it, it means that we cannot go through a process like this, of the confrontation, the understanding and the healing stage and come out of that work being and doing and talking the same way we do now. Uh, that transformation means fundamental change uh, that that this organization and the work that we do here will be different um, after this work. We don't know what that difference will be yet. All we know is that uh, the dialogue that will happen as a result of this of this work, we hope leads to radical transformation um, and, re- and and we hope that it leads us to being better than we are now. Um, We do a lot of great work, but that work is rent meaningless if, you know, we continue to operate in a way that's antithetical to truly being supportive of of the Indigenous community and its survivors and kind of the, and and the things that we need to do to address this legacy. 
so that, that's, a, that's a long answer to say that um, uh, my hope is that through this process, no matter what the outcome is, that the outcome is only something that makes us better. Uh, but the outcome is only something that gets us closer to to justice. Um, that the outcome is only something that is, I think, welcomed by God. Um, I think that's that's the only goal I can personally have. Um, and I don't know what that what that all will look like, but I think uh, that I'm I'm faithful in 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 the sense that I think this process is sacred. Um, and as long as we continue to move in the spirit of, of that work and of that framework of being open, uh, to change and open to, to listen, um, that the outcome will be good. I want to, uh, to hold on to this, this point that, that you're making about faith and, and ask how your personal faith and spirituality shape your involvement in, in this process. Yeah, that's a very good question. I, you know, from my own story, I grew up in a multi-faith household. Um, you know, uh, my mother uh, was deeply traditional in, in our Lakota spirituality. My father was a deep and abiding Catholic man who also, you know, practiced our Lakota traditions as well. I think he was someone who, who didn't, you know, who had personally overcome, you know, this, this idea of, of these things being in conflict. Um, for me, I see a lot of hope in the way that I understand my own spirituality and my own faith. Um, in what's possible. Um, I know that there's so much harm in certainly what the Catholic Church and in what the Christian faith, those who brought the Christian faith to this, this continent, uh, there's a lot of harm in the way that was done. Um, my faith turns me not to the actions of those individuals and those, you know, that the community and the culture that, that allowed for that kind of thinking to flourish, uh, that I, I, I turn to the ways in which I understand the message of the faith and the message specifically of Christ. Uh, and to me, that message is, you know, radical love um, and a deep, belief in in God calling us to to be better to see each other as uh, in, in his image and likeness uh, which means to see each other's dignity um, and to treat each other as fully dignified human beings um, that's the faith that that motivates me and I know, that that spirit hasn't been lived up to historically. Um, and so for me, I think 
I'm hopeful that there can be a, a place where, you know, those who are really struggling, those who, who are really turning to and looking to the, the Catholic Church and in a lot of anger, that that anger can be understood and that the Catholic Church can hear that anger um, and I think respond in that pastoral way that we should be responding um, that says, you know, yes, that that anger is, is real. Um, in fact, that anger even comes from God uh, when we see and sense injustice, right? Um, that, 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 that anger that we feel uh, when we think of that, um, that's, I think that's God moving through us. Um, and I hope, I hope that there's through my faith, certainly, um, the possibility for uh, real relationship to happen. I think that's, that's certainly what keeps me, keeps me strong. I'm, I'm proud of my traditions. I'm, I love uh, my different forms of prayer that I grew up with. Um, they're both really beautiful and valuable to me. Uh, the sacred pipe is something that, you know, we have taken and uh, used to really connect um, with the world around us to uh, communicate even um, with with our creator. And so it's, I feel, I feel that just today I'm, I'm much more able to um, understand the ways in which my, my, uh, my spiritual practices and my faith of the faith that I grew up with, that um, they're both able to lead me closer to to my creator, and um, and I certainly think that uh, this work is something that we're being called to. There's difficulty uh, on the road um, toward toward our our true potential and our full full goodness in relationship with 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 God. So my my hope is that you know we can not be afraid of that difficulty. Um, and that's what certainly animates me. Um, that's what I keep close to my heart, that the, the, the pain is and the anger is not something to be afraid of, um, but that it's in fact necessary for us to heal. You mentioned this really powerful idea of relationship with, with God, with communities, across communities. So I wonder where you might see the Jesuits role in continuing to support and, and form these relationships? That's a very good question. Um, this is something I've only really thought about recently. So I think, I think my, my thoughts on this are, are still really developing, but um, I would say that, you know, my thoughts on this really stem from, you know, my own experience of my culture and, and my faith um, and these two things, you know, forming in, in me uh, that 
I'm able to recognize that the work of building relationship between these different communities, these historically different communities, um, that work isn't just on the Lakota to do. It's also on uh, the side of the Jesuits and, and other Catholic peoples, the Catholic Church writ large, uh, to do work on their end as well. You know, the church, the Catholic Church, you know, talks about being a universal church. And yet we can look to our history and say, it has not behaved always like a universal church. Um, and I think there are ways today in which we still struggle with being a universal church. Um, I think we need to look at how uh, Christianity in the United States and, and whiteness continue to um, be fundamentally tied together in a way that can be exclusive and, um, and I think can lead to and build more of that prejudice. Um, I think it's important for uh, the Catholic Church to really deeply dive into um, the idea and the, and the sin of racism uh, and of, of white supremacy in general and how it's impacted the church here in this country. Um, I think those are the kinds of things that need to happen in order for a relationship to truly be built. Um, because it's not just that, you know, Lakota people have to, you know, come to the table and, and, and forgive, um, that that's, that's not the only movement here. Um, absolutely, you know, uh, forgiveness is, is difficult. Um, there's, there's a beautiful talk um, that I listened to and that I've shared in, in my work so far um, from an indigenous woman in Canada uh, that was, you know, she was speaking during the truth and reconciliation work uh, up in Canada. Um, and she talked about the process that, that, you know, native people, indigenous people sort of have to go through um, to, you know, reach a place where, where healing is possible. And she talks about how it starts with recognizing that, that one is angry at the injustice that, you know, has been committed. Um, and it moves through, you know, this process of, um, of recognizing that anger and, you know, seeing where that anger is directed and, uh, being able to confront that that representation, right? Confront the community that has um, has committed the injustice that has made one angry, um, but also to start to unravel the lie that was embedded within that injustice, the lie that we were inferior, the lie that we were less than because over time, right, community starts to believe that lie um, in different ways. Um, so 
that, you know, all those things, the anger and the, um, the ability to sort of understand where one is even um, contributing to that internalized oppression um, from believing that big lie, all of it culminates in eventually forgiveness. That's a process that only Indigenous people in this case can go through. And it's, it's you know, completely on Indigenous people's end to decide if they move to that space and, and if forgiveness is something that they can give. On the other side, right, the Catholic Church, the Jesuits, um, uh, certainly white Christian America in many ways, um, has to take stock in their own way of, you know, what their what the history uh, has sort of contributed uh, to themselves and their own community to forgiveness of of themselves as well forgiveness in a very different way but maybe certainly contrition right um, and and a real reflection on how how you know those in our history have failed us um, and in, in the ways that we need to do better today um, so it's it's a it's a forgiveness it's a contrition and it's a commitment to change um, that i think is really important interested in learning more about Red Cloud's Truth and Healing Commission, check out the resources in our show notes. We've published an article on Jesuits.org that goes deeper into the school's history and explains the community's ongoing efforts to face that past. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. This episode was edited by me, Megan Leibsch, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The communications team is Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit Justice, on Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and at Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you're interested in discerning a vocation with the Jesuits, visit BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. And subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks.